The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. So it's a chemokine, it's not a hormone, activated by contact with bacterial surface or by the endotoxin the bacteria might stimulate. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from Annals of Hospitalist Inpatient Notes titled A Critical Look at Procalcitonin Testing in Pneumonia that was published in June of 2021. Joining us to discuss this article is Dr. David Gilbert, who's the Chief of Infectious Disease Emeritus at Providence Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. He's also co-editor of the Sanford Guide and has authored a number of papers on procalcitonin. We hope that you learn a bit more about the uses and misuses of procalcitonin in pneumonia and elsewhere. David, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. This really interesting article tries to put procalcitonin into perspective, and I really appreciate that because I work at a hospital that does not have easy access to procalcitonin, so I haven't learned much about it. And I have this philosophy that it's really important for us to understand the pros and cons, the strengths and weaknesses of lab tests. So if you could start by explaining why we started using procalcitonin, what is it, and why it may indicate bacterial infections? Sure. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it was in 2008 that I went to a national infectious disease meeting and heard a few abstracts about this stuff called procalcitonin. And I thought, wow, this is a great way to improve our antibiotic stewardship if it truly does separate invasion by bacteria from invasion by virus. And we were gearing up our diagnostic abilities to detect routine bacteria as well as atypical bacteria. So at the time, we had a lot of patients with acute exacerbations of chronic bronchitis. They'd come to the hospital. They had the usual syndrome. Do they have bacterial infection or not? Do they have viral infection or not? And almost all of them got a cocktail of steroids and antibiotics. And the only diagnostics that were done were culture and sensitivity if they were able to provide uh, sputum and blood cultures. Well, our initial studies with procalcitonin indicated that a high percentage of those patients had no detectable pathogen and had normal procalcitonin levels. And our pulmonary critical care doctors came to me with quotes like, this is a game changer. 
And like you, I said, well, I better learn a little bit more about <clears throat> the details of this procalcitonin stuff. So it's a chemokine, it's not a hormone. It is activated by contact with bacterial surface or by the endotoxin that the bacteria might stimulate. So there's two, there's a direct pathway and an indirect pathway. The direct pathway is you got E. coli in your blood. Every tissue organ in the body responds with the turning on of the machinery that makes procalcitonin. Or a macrophage uh, ingests the E. coli the macrophage then turns on tumor necrosis factor and all the pro-inflammatory cytokines, and those stimulate the release of uh, procalcitonin. So we got a direct and an indirect pathway. What happens if you're infected with a virus? With a virus, the host does not turn on those pro-inflammatory cytokines. It turns on gamma interferon which blocks the transcription of the procalcitonin gene. So the procalcitonin levels don't go up. So there was a clear cut distinction there and that's what has stimulated the uh, investigation of procalcitonin levels. And now a few words about the levels. So Bob, you look pretty comfortable sitting there. I think your procalcitonin level is something like 0.01 or 0.02. The assay that is FDA approved can't measure that low. It can only measure to 0.05 or higher. If I put some endotoxin into your bacteria, but you're a nice guy, so I won't use endotoxin. I won't use back live bacteria. I'll use the endotoxin from the bacteria into your bloodstream, and your procalcitonin will start going up very quickly. So within two to four hours, it will be above the 0.05 level. And in four to six hours, it'll be above 0.25. And then at 24 hours, it will peak. And this was actually done in medical student volunteers. And that's why when patients are admitted to the hospital with community-acquired pneumonia or in the emergency room with community-acquired pneumonia, we say, yes, the procalcitonin level should be low if it's virus, but it could be on the way up if the patient has got a, uh, shakes and chills and producing voluminous amounts of purulence, sputum, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why I think some of the literature is confounding because they just draw a single procalcitonin level. So the patient may be miscategorized as having a normal procalcitonin. If a procalcitonin goes from 0.05 to 0.5, that's a tenfold increase. If it goes to five, uh, it can go up a hundredfold. And if the patient is hypoxic, if blood pressure is unstable, you're not going to believe that. I wouldn't want you to believe that as a clinician. So we recommend two procalcitonins. That's point number one. Point number two is you really, in your introduction to me, you said your institution doesn't facilitate getting procalcitonin levels. 
you really need a rapid turnaround time. So our place is geared for procalcitonin levels 24-7, seven days a week at all times. We usually get the result back in an hour. In fact, before we start ICU rounds, we order procalcitonins on the patients where we think that's indicated and so that we'll have the results before the end, end of uh, patient care rounds. I hope that answers your question. It really does. This um, it's sort of an opinion piece looked at new community-acquired pneumonia patients. And I, I've done a couple of podcasts on community-acquired pneumonia, and it's become uh, a, a major concern of mine because so many people who get labeled as community-acquired pneumonia have something else. What I understand you're telling me is that if we have a rapid turnaround procalcitonin and we're trying to decide, is this community-acquired pneumonia bacterial? And the studies quote in this article and studies that you've written suggest that a significant number of people of community-acquired pneumonia have a, a viral infection rather than a bacterial infection, that we should get an initial procalcitonin. If it's high uh, and we don't have another reason, we'll talk about the other reasons, then we can say, yeah, we, we got bacterial. If it's not high, repeat in about six hours. And if it's gone up, say, yeah, we caught the patient too early and so still probably bacterial. Uh, what I also hear you saying is that there's a um, clinical presentation that is so suggestive of bacterial pneumonia that you would give antibiotics and not worry about the procalcitonin. Am I putting words in your mouth? To a degree, yes, and to a degree, no. Okay, uh, the correct clinical, me. The, the, Well, the clinical syndrome trumps everything else, so that's number one. Number two, you can have a viral infection, influenza, rhinovirus, any of the usual respiratory viruses, and get a bacterial uh, infection on top of it, a super infection. And so the procalcitonin can start out low and then subsequently be elevated. Because if you have a mixed infection, virus and bacteria, the bacterial stimuli trump the interferon mm -hmm. uh, blockade, if you will. So, uh, but you bring up another point, and that is a lot of the literature is basing their critique of procalcitonin on a patient population with uh, pneumonia, say, and they're only establishing the etiology of the pneumonia in 20, 30% of the patients that are enrolled in the study. So I criticize the papers when they only get one procalcitonin level. I also criticize the papers when they have such a low yield as far as detecting potential pathogens. So when we introduced procalcitonin, we introduced also a diagnostic bundle. The bundle included the PCR platform for respiratory viruses, the sputum culture, the blood cultures, the urine antigens for pneumococcus and Legionella, and a PCR nasal swab for Staph aureus. And with that bundle, we detected a potential pathogen in 60-70% of the patients and then our stewardship team correlated that with the procalcitonin. So you gave you more flexibility and assistance besides your bedside acumen 
and whether or not you think the bacteria that you detected are just colonizing, because even though you detected the pneumococcus in this COPD exacerbation, patient's procalcitonin stays at less than 0.05. If the patient had a rhinovirus or a tobacco-induced bronchitis and you detected the virus, the rhinovirus, and you detected the pneumococcus, you'd say, huh, looks like this fits with a rhinovirus tobacco-induced bronchitis with superinfection by the pneumococcus. It gives you another tool to work with. That's great. I'm always interested, and I've asked a number of people this, what's the description of someone in whom you're so clinically satisfied that they have bacterial community-acquired pneumonia that you don't even need a procalcitonin? So, and the, the technical term is the illness script. What's your illness script for community-acquired pneumonia that you're going to give that patient antibiotics, you don't care what the procalcitonin shows? IV drug user, shaking chills, pulmonary infiltrates, elevated white count differential. You probably are pretty correct 95% of the time that the patient probably has staphylococcal bacteremia with multicentric pneumonia. Okay. So there are certain situations in which procalcitonin is not going to help us because it's going to be elevated. And we discussed this earlier before we started recording. And if I remember right, we need to talk about kidney disease and we need to talk about COVID. We obviously have to talk about COVID in in 2022. So why don't we start with COVID and how that might have an impact on how we make our decisions. And then we'll talk about kidney disease. Okay. So I have a list of what increases the procalcitonin level and bacterial invasive disease, which we've already discussed. I'm going to do it backwards, Bob, and first go to the uh, second issue, which is renal insufficiency. So if your patient has a creatinine clearance of less than 10, then since the procalcitonin is excreted by the kidneys, your level in the blood builds up and you can be led down the garden path thinking you've got an elevated procalcitonin when you're really diagnosing renal insufficiency. On the flip side, if the patient's in the hospital and they're started and they have an elevated procalcitonin and they're started on not only appropriate management with antibiotics, but they're started on uh, continuous renal replacement therapy and you get a follow-up procalcitonin and it comes down by 50% because you're clearing procalcitonin from the blood with your uh, hemodialysis. Before COVID came along, we were talking about cytokine storms from our oncologic colleagues' manipulations with CAR T-cells and with checkpoint inhibitors, immunologic treatment of cancer, if you will. So cytokines turn on the procalcitonin genes in a very powerful way. I think of it as the, the literature says macrophage activation syndrome. I, I call it the mad macrophage syndrome. You've flooded with huge amounts of TNF, interleukin-1, interleukin-2, interleukin-6, etc., and the procalcitonin level goes up. And that's what's happening with co- some of the COVID patients, at least with the 
Delhi strain before we got to Omicron. And um, we have a heck of a time deciphering whether the elevated procalcitonin is due to cytokine storm or due to uh, back, true bacterial invasive disease, translocation of gut bacteria or something of that nature. It's interesting, Bob, that in the first reports out of Wuhan, China, the patients uh, with their acute COVID-19 pneumonia virtually 90% of them had normal procalcitonins at time of presentation. And then three days later, 10 to 30% had deterioration of their oxygenation, et cetera, and their procalcitonins went up. And is that because of involvement uh, by the uh, virus in the small blood vessels causing endotheliitis, if you will, allowing translocation of gut bacteria? Should we give antibiotics? Or is that just the physiologic response to too much pro-inflammatory cytokine? Hard to know. Some other things that raise the procalcitonin level that are worth knowing about that it can be a perineoplastic syndrome. It's about once every six months, one of the hospitalists will call me and say, you know, I always knew this procalcitonin was a bunch of bunco. I've got an afebrile patient here and uh, normal white count, no clinical syndrome consistent with uh, invasive bacterial disease and the procalcitonin is 1,000. I, and of course, my response is, did you palpate the thyroid? Because the procalcitonin is made in the C cells of the thyroid and medullary thyroid carcinoma can cause astronomical procalcitonin levels. There are a few other tumor-related procalcitonins. Neuroendocrine tumors can also raise the procalcitonin. And then what about our patients that have massive tumor or na- massive tissue necrosis, a crush injury? Another good one is acute hepatic pa- necrosis where the ALT and the AST are in the thousands. Why does that make the procalcitonin go up? I love this story. I don't even know if it's true, but I love it. Uh, it's the mitochondrial DNA. We've all been taught that mitochondrial DNA in an evolutionary sense were bacteria to begin with before they took up residence in eukaryotic cells as mitochondria. And if you lyse a bunch of cells in a sterile fashion and flood the system with mitochondrial DNA, the host innate immune response says, oh my God, we're being invaded. And you get a procalcitonin stimulation and your levels go way up. So let's finish this up by posing this question. And this is really an antibiotic stewardship question. Do you believe that procalcitonin is more valuable in preventing the use of antibiotics in someone with possible community-acquired pneumonia, but not a great story? Or is it better for monitoring them and decreasing the duration of antibiotics? Well, the answer, of course, is both under the particular circumstances. But to go to the first one, when the patient shows up with 
uh, I could go either way in this patient. I'll go back to my acute exacerbation of chronic bronchitis. And if you have a normal procalcitonin level, 0.05, or the literature says 0.25, but whatever cutoff you're comfortable with, it's the negative predictive value is 90%. If you wait, you say, oh, well, I can hang on for another six hours before I make the decision. If you, did, you go another six hours and it's still less than 0.05, less than 0.01, it's still a low number, you've got 96% negative predictive value. Where else in medicine do you get 96%? Not very many places. Uh, as far as duration of therapy, if you compare the adult literature with the pediatric literature, there is a striking difference because it, the duration of therapy in kids is uniformly less than the duration of therapy in adults. The pediatricians get to treat kids who are usually have few comorbidities. They don't have COPD. They don't have congestive heart failure for one reason or another. They don't have diabetes mellitus. They're not on immunosuppressives. They're not being treated for cancer, et cetera. We're stuck in the adult population. We don't often get pure disease. If you take some pure disease like bacterial meningitis or ruptured appendix with peritonitis, and the patient doesn't have any of these if, ands, and wherefores, then you can cut the duration of therapy by up to a couple, three days. If you've got an uncomplicated pneumococcal pneumonia, we know from multiple studies, and I think this is why you asked the question, that you only need three to four days of treatment, so why get another procalcitonin? So there's certainly circumstances where you don't need another procalcitonin. So Bob, can I end up with the five potential uses of procalcitonin? Please. Okay, one, this is the original package insert that the height of the procalcitonin is a prognostic factor in septic patients. Second is in adjudicating uh, bacterial versus viral infection and helping with the, the organisms that you detected. It's in, now you need to figure out if it's colonizing or invading. Third is getting a follow-up procalcitonin after two days of your empiric antibiotic use to see if it's coming down. In other words, as a monitor of source control and duration of therapy. Okay, the last one that hasn't gotten much uh, attention is FUOs, because the procalcitonin is not turned on, the gene is not turned on by collagen vascular disease, temporal arteritis, systemic lupus, polyarteritis nodosa. So that sort of takes the rheumatologic cause of the FUO off the table. And there are very few tumors that cause procalcitonin to go up. The lymphomas that are often part of the FUO differential do not increase. So it can help you with your differential diagnosis of an FUO. David, I can't thank you enough uh, for shedding much light. I feel much more intelligent about procalcitonin than I did 20 minutes ago. 
And uh, I know that all of our listeners will really appreciate uh, your wisdom. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This discussion helped me understand that one can't look at a procalcitonin level alone without the context of the patient. It may be useful in patients with suspected pneumonia to decide whether they need antibiotics or not. However, a normal procalcitonin level should be followed up six hours later because sometimes uh, there's a lag in the procalcitonin elevation. We also must be very aware of other reasons other than bacterial infections that can cause procalcitonin elevations. Understanding the reasons for the test and the potential use will help us avoid the misuse of this sometimes useful but not always useful diagnostic aid. Thank you for listening to Annals on Call. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.